Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community again. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here with us, especially if you're newer or this is your first time at Christ Community. We're really glad um, that you're with us and that you're taking your time to, to join us this morning. Um, as we continue now in our time of worship and um, prayer and service together this morning, uh, as we get ready to continue in our Forgotten Family sermon series, I'd love to pray uh, and just ask for God's word to come alive in fresh ways for us now. So Father in heaven, we thank you, that just like we sang a moment ago, that, that every word, every syllable um, that you've spoken in your word, recorded, preserved for us, is not in vain. And we just ask now that even those more obscure parts of the Bible that maybe for some of us we've never even read, we've never even heard of, that by the power of your Holy Spirit who inspired those words, even now would make them come alive and speak to us afresh in this moment. Open our hearts to hear from you this morning. Not just to hear, but to be doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, recently my kids received an envelope in the mail uh, and it had three postcards in it from their grandparents who are uh, been traveling for about a month now and so there were some postcards from all over uh, where their grandparents have been traveling and they were so excited to have these postcards and um, I, I read aloud uh, the postcards to, to all of them gathered as a group and they were just so excited to hear a message from grandma and grandpa directly to them read aloud in front of their their siblings and they were just they were so excited about it and uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had those moments when whether it was a physical letter that arrived in the mail or an email or a text message but someone said you've got to hear this and and people gathered around and they read the message out loud maybe some good news that they received well this morning now imagine receiving a letter from the apostle paul that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written specifically to you, to, to you. I mean, how nervous would you be to receive it, especially if you knew that it was going to be read publicly in front of the whole church that morning? Well, in just a moment, we are going to read an entire book of the Bible together, the whole thing. Uh, it's one of the most unusual letters in the Bible, a story of a slave, a master, and an apostle. And it's primarily to an individual, a man named Philemon. Uh, and before we hear these words, though, imagine that you are Philemon. Try to put yourself into his shoes. You're a Christian. You're a part of a household church. In fact, that church maybe even meets in your home sometimes. And you're in this town, the city called Colossae. You actually helped Epaphras, the church planner there, start this Christian community. A while back, you and Epaphras had gone to Ephesus, and you'd heard this preacher, Paul, a while back. And, and like a lot of people at that time, even Gentiles, as you heard this good news, you gave your life to Jesus and returned home and started sharing the good news. And God, oh, God is doing something amazing there in Colossae. The, the movement is growing, and yes, there, there are false teachers occasionally. Um, there's some persecution, but things are really changing. Something cool, really amazing is happening there in your city. It's exciting. But then a few months ago, something happened. You endured a major financial hardship. One of your slaves, Onesimus, had escaped, had run away. 
That's not terribly unusual. It happened all the time, but it's a big hit to you financially. You relied on this person who, other than providing sort of room and board there in your household, worked for you for free. So somehow, you know, Onesimus' family fell into debt, and he's working for you until he pays it off. And now you're just out all of that money that he owed. Now, this was a common economic practice in the Roman Empire at this time. And some estimates say that in the city of Rome itself, upwards of 90% of people at, at one time were, were in some form of indentured servitude. And this kind of slavery in some form or another was prevalent all throughout the world. And again, this is not at all to, to justify it, as we're going to see, but simply to point out that Philemon also probably had no cause to question it at all. And the thought that this tiny Christian movement would, would overturn slavery in the Roman Empire would be a little bit like today, like the Amish movement saying, we're going to abolish all motor vehicles in the United States. I mean, not only is it sort of this monumental task for a tiny group of people with very little kind of cultural power, but also you're dealing with a group of people in the broader culture who, who not only uh, rely every day on this system— but like, don't even have an imagination for how life could ever possibly exist outside of this. That's the place where this early Christian movement is at, finally even included. And one day, your church gathers for worship. Tychicus, your, your friend, shows up. He's back from visiting Paul in prison, probably in Rome. We don't know for sure whether he's imprisoned in, in Ephesus or Rome, but probably in Rome. And he's got a letter from Paul to the Colossian churches, which is, which is great. A letter from Paul to your group of churches. What is Paul going to—we have that letter. It's called the letter to the Colossians. It's going to be a great sermon today in church. We've got a fresh letter from Paul. And as Tychicus enters the room, someone comes in behind him. It's Onesimus, your escaped slave. And suddenly you're shocked, maybe even angry, furious, and the whole church is watching you because they know. I mean, they, they know what Onesimus has put you through. And if everyone watching in silence, wondering what will happen, Onesimus walks up to you and hands you another letter. And as was the practice, the letter was going to be read aloud for everyone to hear. And actually, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to open this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, and we're going to read it out loud. It's also found on page 1,000 in your pew Bible. So if you'd like to open your Bible to page 1,000, you can do this. And I just invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. This letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. So he says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of everything that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, appeal to you, my child, for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, Philemon, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted for you for a while, from you for a while, that you might have him back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, So, Philemon, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charges it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, Philemon, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. I'm going to come, I'm going to come visit Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, in Christ Jesus sends you his greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So again, imagine that you are Philemon, and Onesimus, your escaped slave, is standing in front of you, and you've just read this aloud in front of your church, your friends, your family. What are you going to do? I mean, because Paul's laid it on pretty thick in this letter, hasn't he? For starter, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's placing himself on the same social standing, that lower class standing, as Onesimus would be as a slave this escaped slave. But it's also clear in the letter, Philemon, that Paul loves you, that he honors you, that he clearly loves Onesimus, and he's been greatly helped by him. Onesimus has become a Christian. I mean, how do you feel about that, Philemon? Are you glad? Or are you disappointed because this now really complicates your relationship with Onesimus? Or are you wondering why Why did Onesimus need to escape from you to hear the good news about Jesus? Here you are, a co-worker in the gospel with the Apostle Paul. You're a church planner. Your own household, though, members didn't know the good news. And, And we know from other letters that many Christians were slaves. Sort of like, why didn't you think of that? Maybe because you didn't want to. Now this time you've talked about Onesimus running away from you, and now it's dawning on you. He didn't run away. He escaped. He escaped to find Paul to hear about Jesus and come back and confront you. Onesimus had a plan all along, and actually God was in it, and you blew it, right? In verse 15, Paul writes that Onesimus was separated from you, but notice Paul didn't specify who did the separating. And a number of top New Testament scholars actually suggests that this is what is called a divine passive, because it's a passive voice. There's not the actor doing the separating. It's not specified. 
But a divine pastor means that it's God is the one who did the work. N.T. Wright, probably one of the top scholars in the New Testament today, says this, Paul may be suggesting in a typically oblique way that God may have attended, intended Onesimus to run away so that he might find Christ for himself. So you take that reading, verse 15 sounds like this, for this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you by God for a while, that you, Philemon, might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. An African New Testament scholar, Obetsuo Tairoebun, fills in the picture a bit more. He writes this, He, Onesimus, knew that his master had been converted into the Christian faith as the entire household was now taking part in worship at the house, and he knew that the leader of the evangelistic movement was Paul and that he was in Rome. He says, in my observation, Onesimus knew that the new faith proposed new things that had been unheard of for some time. Philemon, Paul is now asking you to do something radical to receive Onesimus as a brother. And this is a world-shattering statement for you. Because again, this was the common economic practice. The whole system of the Roman world operated on class distinctions where some work is for servants, some work is for masters, and no one questioned the system. Again, this would be like Amish with motor vehicles in this moment. No one's questioning the system. But then the good news about Jesus, Christian adoption into the family of God, changes everything. Here's how New Testament scholar Esau McCauley puts it. Paul uses familial language, calling Philemon his brother. And the point is clear. Oneness in Christ transforms relationships. Society values those with power and status. Christians treat all people, slave, free, or prisoner, as family. And this idea that slaves and masters are family undermines slavery. Because who would enslave a brother or a sister? And here, here Paul is playing the role of Christ between you and Onesimus, this, this mediator. And it's as clear as day. I love you both, Paul says. Charge it to my account. I will absorb the debt. Have koinonia, have fellowship, partnering, sharing with. That's in verse 6, the sharing with language. It's the idea of mutual participation in the gospel. Philemon, I want you to have Onesimus join you as a partner in the mission that you're on together. Share in this work. And then I love how Paul ends in verses 23 and 24. It's basically saying, oh, and here are all the other people who agree with me on this, and I'll be coming to check up with you uh, on you if I can. We all talked about it and we agree this is the best way forward, Philemon. So Philemon, what are you going to do? If what Paul is saying is true, how can you keep Onesimus as a slave anymore? I mean, yes, he technically broke Roman law, but both your Savior Jesus and the Apostle Paul were arrested too. Paul is in prison too, presumably for breaking Roman law. He's a criminal also. And Paul here is not appealing to Roman law. He's not appealing to human thinking, what is permissible. He is appealing to Christ and the radical new set of relationships that the gospel creates. Koinonia, fellowship, equality, love, partnership in the gospel mission. Paul is doing everything here in this letter but explicitly commanding you to release Onesimus. And Paul is not connecting the dots, but he certainly is pointing out the dots and handing you a pencil to connect them. Right? Because all throughout the letter, right, I could command you 
but I know you'll do what is right. He served you in place of me. You would have helped me if you could, and he would make a great co-worker for me in the spread of the gospel. So everyone is looking at you, Onesimus, including, or Philemon, including Onesimus. What are you going to do? And what can you do? Because while we aren't entirely sure how Philemon responds, we can be pretty confident of what Paul is saying here. Both to Philemon 2,000 years ago and to us here in Kansas City today. And it's this, that grace turns the world upside down. Grace turns the world upside down. Because the letter to Philemon, in, in so many ways, it is, it's, a, it's a grace sandwich with a, with a heaping pile of grace in between. Because the first thing that Paul says to Philemon in this letter, the very first thing he says in the greeting is this, grace, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very last thing that Paul says to Philemon in the letter, verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And, and everything in between that grace bread of that sandwich is slathered with all kinds of grace mayo. And I don't know, maybe I was just really hungry when I was writing this message and wanted a sandwich, but that was the metaphor I thought of. It's bookended by grace. Because grace turns the world upside down. And when Paul is chased out of the city of Thessalonica, the charge that's kind of brought against him and those who are with him in Acts 17, verse 6, is this, that the crowd was shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. See, when grace is revealed, worship is the response but, but not just a worship that's confined to an hour on Sunday morning and the singing of a few songs and listening to a message, but a worship that alters every part of life, upending worship that spills over into every aspect of our lives. And that's what's happening here in this letter. And there are three ways that we see grace at work here in this letter. And the first is that grace changes you. Grace changes you. And this is the core of what Christians understand about the world. The core that Christians believe about the world and also what's wrong with the world. Christians believe that the source of all brokenness, all evil, abuse, oppression, cheating, lying, gossip, all sin, whether big, dramatic, public, kind of heinous, evil, or little, small, contained, hidden sins of the heart and mind. But that is behind all of the brokenness in the world. Our rebellion against God and his love and our rejection of his design for our good. Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, the main problem in life is sin. And the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative to this is to identify something besides sin as the main problem and something beside God as the main remedy problem, Keller points out, though, is that that demonizes something that's not completely bad, and it makes an idol out of something that cannot be ultimately good. But the, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the problem of sin has been dealt with by grace. And not just a cheap grace that leaves one unchanged, but a costly, life-changing grace that transforms you. Every one of the characters in Paul's letter here to the Philemon and his friends 
has been changed dramatically by grace. I mean, even think of, first of all, Paul, the one writing the letter, has been changed by grace. He was trying to destroy the church until God's grace intervenes. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, and Paul's life is transformed, and he becomes the apostle of grace. Even how he addresses Philemon in this letter is just so filled with grace, right? He, he speaks with, with such honor in preserving Philemon's dignity and agency, even as he instructs him in the implications of grace. I wonder if we offer correction and receive correction with the kind of grace that we see Paul here. But that's, not, that's not natural Paul. That's Paul transformed by grace. I mean, Onesimus, Think of Onesimus, this escaped slave. He's changed by grace. I mean, how do we know? Because he goes back to Philemon. Imagine that only the power of grace and the trust in the power of grace to change Philemon could compel him to do that after he experienced that freedom, right? That's just a lot of faith that, that Onesimus is putting in the power of grace to transform Philemon, that he is going back, carrying this letter from Paul, trusting that Philemon isn't going to either turn him over to the Roman authorities or just enslave him again. And I also believe that Philemon is transformed by this grace, that he does grant Onesimus his freedom, that he does receive him as a brother. Why? I think the main reason why I think that this happened is because we have the letter. We have the letter preserved. And why would we have it preserved for us unless it was intended in the manner that it was received, right? Because Paul probably wrote dozens, maybe even hundreds of personal letters like this, ones that we'll never see, ones that aren't preserved as Scripture. But why was this one kept, and who kept it? Maybe it was Philemon who kept it. A sort of a, a treasured monument or remembrance of not only his conversion and trust in Jesus, but to Jesus' kingdom vision. Or, or maybe Onesimus, maybe he kept it as a reminder that his freedom in Christ also meant freedom from oppression. Either way, I think if Philemon had ignored Paul's instructions, I doubt we would have had the letter preserved for us. Grace changes you. But that change is costly. Philemon had to absorb the debt, the financial cost of freeing Onesimus. The grace is free, but the change in his life is costly. And if your biggest hesitation or obstacle or stumbling block to following Jesus or taking the further step of obedience in your obedience to Jesus is that it will cost you financially, what does that say about the, the vice grip that money so easily has on our lives? I think one of the greatest evidences that, that grace has truly changed you is that it transforms your finances, how you earn and spend and save and give. That If you're a Christian and your financial and economic life have not been changed or disrupted or challenged or impacted in any significant way, that grace still has work to do in your life. As I heard one pastor say, when you're, when you're baptized as a Christian, your wallet gets wet too. Next, we see that not only does grace change you, grace changes every relationship. And it wasn't that Onesimus could be okay by himself or Philemon could be okay by himself. They needed to be brought together. That grace needed to affect every aspect of their relationship. 
Their relationship changed from slave-master or victim-victimizer to brother, to family. And this doesn't mean that that was easy. I I have no idea. What was that like for them? If that was indeed the path, what did that look like? Or it's easy for any of us in our relationships, but the family metaphor is the dominant metaphor in the New Testament for how the people of God relate to one another. Which means that I have more in common with a Christian in Indonesia than I do with someone in my own family who rejects Jesus. More in common with a believer who sees the world entirely different from me than I do with someone who agrees with me on every point of life except who Jesus is. That's what grace does. And if there's a relationship in your life, your, your marriage or a colleague or a family member or a parent or a child, someone in, in our church family, if there's a relationship in your life that are not first seen through this lens of grace, friends, you're, you're missing it. We're missing it. We actually have another letter probably written about 50 years after Paul wrote this letter. It's not in the Bible, but it was written again maybe about 50 years later. And it mentions Onesimus. And we don't know for sure, but we're pretty sure that this is the same Onesimus. Listen to what this letter says. Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your bishop, whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love, and that you would all seek to be like him. And blessed be he who has granted unto you, being worthy to obtain such an excellent bishop. It's believed that Onesimus, this former slave, ends up as a bishop in the church Wouldn't it be interesting if Onesimus became Philemon's pastor? Became his spiritual overseer? we We don't know for sure if this is the same Onesimus, but we do know this is the kind of thing that grace does. It's the kind of thing grace does. So grace changes you. Grace changes every relationship. And lastly here, as a result, grace turns the world upside down. Because it doesn't stop with you. It doesn't stop with the relationships of the people near you. Grace changes the world. It changes everything. When Jesus' kingdom comes, he comes, or I should say, when Jesus comes as a king, he, he brings a kingdom. It was the book of Philemon and the New Testament that eventually abolished slavery. Now, it, it took way too long, both in the Roman Empire and certainly in England and the United States much later on, and that's not to minimize how Christians have misused the Bible or the ways in which the church has been complicit, but it is the New Testament, friends, that abolished slavery. And sadly, slavery has existed everywhere by nearly every people group ever since sin entered the world, and it is evil. But Christians, Christians were the first abolitionists. And the cultures that have been most impacted by Christianity are the ones who have been most active in fighting slavery today and throughout the history of the world. And I don't know if Paul ever could have seen it coming, but this letter right here, his letter to Philemon, laid the groundwork for a movement that would have set millions and millions and millions and millions of people free from enslavement. You see, Christians have always been passionate about justice. But I fear for the church in this moment because more and more I think there are two polarized and kind of politicized ends of the spectrum in our society. We're forming two very very distinct groups, even within the church, 
We have some who often, with the very best, with good intentions, have been swept up by a secular view of justice, and it can sound good and look appealing, but it only leads to more injustice. That's a a secular definition of justice. But on the other side, there are some who are so afraid of that kind of secular version or vision of justice that we are completely withdrawn from the conversation, and we assume that even when someone is talking about biblical justice, of which the Bible talks so much, that they are just bringing it up as a means to advance some secular agenda. So church, let's not give in to either extreme, but hold to a biblical justice, a gospel-powered justice that tears down walls, that sets people free, that is compassionate toward the hurting, that can reconcile and do it with grace toward everyone. Because that's what grace does. It turns the world upside down. And like Philemon with his cultural blindness, like Onesimus with his literal chains, grace can set you free. It can set me free. It changed Philemon. It changed Onesimus. It changed a little house church almost 2,000 years ago. It changed Rome, and it changed us. It upended slavery, one of the most entrenched and ancient oppressive institutions the world has ever known. It's changed you and me, and it continues to confront and challenge a world of evils today, not with violence or hatred or coercion, with grace. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus, another criminal of the Roman Empire, Paul, Onesimus, Jesus, rather than allowing us to suffer in our sins, rather than allowing us to remain in our oppression, Jesus said on the cross, charge it to my account. That's the evil that we have, the evil that we've done, the evil that we have ignored, the evil that we've received at others' hands, charge it to my account. And that And only that can turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving this letter for us, for inspiring and guiding Paul, speaking through Paul to us, not only 2,000 years ago, but at this moment, of the world-upending power of grace of the good news that grace can never be confined just to personal forgiveness, but that always spills over into world-upending change. Lord, would you help each one of us to know how you are calling us to respond in worship, life-upending worship in response to the grace you've given. I pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.